Hey, we've got good news. The new attorney general is making moves and actually standing up for conservative values. Glad to see it happening, and we welcome it. I'm John Fender, along with Gary Humble and Kevin Kukaji. This is the Freedom Matters Podcast. The entire Biden administration, Obama administration kind of did this, but the Biden administration is doing it guns a-blazing. And it's this. You have a court that already said you can't refer to this rulemaking. And yet the Biden administration basically does what? Yeah, gives them the burden. That's what they're doing. <laughs> That's what they do to the law. The law has no value to them. They're like, come and get us. We're just going to roll you. I'm not, you know, unfortunately, we're not on video. And so the audience <laughs> no, just but missed. I'm, I almost can you. guarantee you people heard that. Yeah. Because it was double. Like he didn't just do <laughs> one, he did two. Double bird. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> but the point is, we can't keep making reference to the law, the law, the law, because the left does not regard the law as being an impediment to anything they do. I'll give you one more example, then we'll get into the state attorney general. This week, a memo came out, it was leaked, that the IG, Inspector General, who had been investigating the Department of Defense with regard to their vaccine mandates and not accepting any religious liberty exceptions, the IG said to the Department, Secretary of Defense said, (laughs) this is funny, we think you're probably going to be in violation of the law from what you've done. And he showed him provisions of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was passed by Congress, I think, in 94, somewhere back in the 90s, and also to the Department of Defense's own regulations. And the Department of Defense did? Oh, another one. You heard it. (laughs) Did you hear that? (laughs) And the Department of Defense went on and just continued to do this. So we can't argue the law. We've got to argue the beliefs that support the law. We have to argue the ideas that made the law what it is and not just say, but the Constitution. Yeah, where the laws come from. John, we just dove right in again. No, do it. That's fine. Happy to do that. Um, I'm glad you guys did because I want to get into this. I, I, To be honest, I haven't. You did a video on this, correct, Gary? Yeah, well, just, you know. It just struck me. I was excited. Yeah. Our, our attorney general's firing off. Well, and to be honest, I haven't watched the video yet. I just saw yeah. a, I was sent a screenshot that it happened and I saw the headline that was written. I was like, we need to talk about this because I need to know about it. And I want to know about it. So yeah. let's talk about it. Well, I believe if I'm not mistaken, we have a new attorney general, Jonathan Scrimetti. Uh, he was sworn in last week, I believe. And prior, you know, he was chief counsel, I believe, in the governor's office. And so... Upon the retiring of former Attorney General Herbert Slatery, uh, enter now Jonathan Scrimetti. Um, Do we know anything about him? What's his background? Well, I know some folks who know of him. Uh, for example, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Mr. David Fowler, runs Family Action Council Tennessee, mm-hmm. thinks thinks fairly highly of, of Mr. Scrimetti. You know, he's been a, a firm conservative stalwart for some time on several issues. And so, you know, the, the issue always is not for me. In terms of what I've seen of our attorney general, especially the last one, it's, it's not necessarily maybe where they line up ideologically. Probably they're pretty conservative. It's just do they have the fight in them, mm-hmm. which we lacked. Backbone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In other words, do they believe the words that they speak or do they believe the words that they write? Yeah. So this guy this week comes out, I mean, swinging. I mean, a, a really great 
really what's technically a comment. So, gosh, how many pages is this? This is about a um, – hang on a second. This is a – Almost enough to need one of those bigger size staples. Yeah, that's right. I almost <laughs> didn't make it. It's a 14-page comment to the proposed federal regulation from the Department of Education to redefine Title IX to include – Gender identity. So, in other words, uh, Department of Education is telling our schools across the country you can no longer discriminate not only on the basis of, of sex, but we're now going to include sexual orientation and gender identity. But go back for people who don't know, Title IX mm-hmm. is specifically has to do with discrimination? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, Title IX, in fact, hang on, I will read you this comment. And, and by the way, before I move on, just so – he wrote this comment, submitted it to the, the Federal Register, and um, he was joined by 19 other attorney generals across the country. So it's oh, just okay. yeah, fantastic. So to our see, attorney generals leading the way. Leading the way Very with, good. with uh, 19 others. And so it's just worth noting he actually states what the legislative intent of Title IX is. He says, finally reading, quote, sex to mean sex neatly aligns with Title IX's indisputable aim, ending the, quote, corrosive and unjustified discrimination against women that was, quote, overtly and socially acceptable within the academic community in the early 1970s. Hmm. So Title IX's, you know, uh, entire point of inception was to curb discrimination that was happening specifically against women in in academic institutions. Equal treatment for women. That's right. Well, we're now going to completely destroy that with what the Department of Education is trying to do. And interestingly, before I I dive in, they don't have the goods to amend Title IX through Congress, even with the ridiculousness, crappy leadership we have there now, they couldn't even get this amendment passed. So instead of amending Title IX – What the Department of Education is doing is creating a new rule that would simply reinterpret Title IX for education using a notice of interpretation that was filed in 2021 by the Office of Civil Rights that now in 2022 has been enjoined in federal court. You guys follow me? No, not at all. (laughs) So this is – this. if you think like government sucks – And they try to pull one over on you. They actually do. So this is what – I'm going to read this, and we can talk about it. This is what the department is proposing. So they're going to – currently, Title IX says this. Except as provided elsewhere in this part, no person shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in – be denied the benefits of or be subjected to discrimination under any academic, extracurricular, research, occupational training, or other education program or activity operated by a recipient which receives federal financial assistance. So schools across the country, if you receive federal assistance, you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. All right. That's going to stay there. Now, this is what the department is proposing on adding In the limited circumstances in which Title IX permits different treatment or separation on the basis of sex, a recipient must not carry out such different treatment or separation. (laughs) Kevin's a a lawyer, and even he's laughing. Uh, In a manner that discriminates on the basis of sex by subjecting a person to more than de minimis harm unless otherwise permitted by Title IX or this part. And here's the key phrase. 
adopting a policy or engaging in a practice that prevents a person from participating in an education program or activity consistent, here we go, with the person's gender identity subjects a person to more than de minimis harm on the basis of sex. How do you like that, Kevin? Is is that legal footwork to add this nonsense <clears throat> into Title IX or, or what? Not legal footwork. There's certainly no authority. As you pointed out, I think we do have to go back to that one more time so we understand what's happening. I'm not even 100% sure what was just said. <laughs> that well, was just like a word salad. It, <laughs> So let's let's simplify it first. What the Department of Education is trying to do is to expand the definition of Title IX to include gender identity according to the person who wants to say, I am something that I'm not. I'm something that I wasn't born to be. And they're using for authority not the law but their own rules that were written in 2021, which, as Gary pointed out, even those rules were already enjoined by a federal court. Federal court says, no, you can't reinterpret Title IX. So, again, <laughs> all they are doing is going, beep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so initially, so let's let's kick that into the conversation. Initially, in 20, on June 22nd, 2021, the Office of Civil Rights and the Department of Education issued a notice of interpretation which says this, the department issues this interpretation to make clear that the department interprets Title IX's prohibition on sex discrimination to encompass discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity and to provide the reasons for this interpretation as set below. And they go on for all these reasons that they're going to do it. Can, can we can we stop for a second? Yeah. What is a... What is it? A notice of interpretation? Yeah, so... What, what, what is that? So it's... This is how I see the law. Yeah. Isn't it just like right. it's exactly what, the law what it is? That's exactly what it is. No. But it just can't be like We're, there's a law that is a law. There is a law. And it's a law. But I'm and going— And it says this. If you are lawless, yes. you have to resort to these other means. I'm going to now redefine what words mean. And, and, this, and I'm going to let you know that I'm redefining the words. And a notice of interpretation is like a legal—that's a legal document that can be presented in some sort of like— well, it's an executive function. It's not yeah, a legislative not a, function. That's right. Okay. And that's one of the reasons I would imagine why the court told them. I, I'm sure it was there was a hearing, et cetera, but why a court enjoined this particular one. I don't know who who raised the issue before the court, whether it was Congress. It, actually, it was uh, state of Tennessee. It was state of Tennessee versus Department of Education. Um, and the ruling came down on July 15th, 2022, so a little over a year after the notice of interpretation was filed. So yeah, this essentially is a, a federal agency bypassing Congress and letting you know that we are going to redefine the words in this law passed by Congress so that we can effectually do what it is we want to do. So we're gonna we're gonna reinterpret the word sex to include gender identity and sexual orientation. And Which, just because they issue a interpretation means that they can it, it carte blanche just gives them whatever they want no, to be able to do well no this is what's important to understand remember the left never rests so if the left doesn't get what they want in the law then they will resort to extra legal measures to try to accomplish it and as long as no one challenges it it mm. will become effectively law not not in the i put law in quotes and so that's another good thing 
And I guess we have to give credit to the prior attorney general, if this was in 2021. True. That Tennessee actually took them to task. Uh, no action like that, extrajudicial or extra, what's the equivalent in legislature? Extra legislature? Just extra legal, I guess, is going to become effective if people challenge it. But if people just roll over, it's just mm-hmm. like the vaccine mandates. It's just like the lockdowns. If people just roll over, it becomes part of our culture. Mm. To your point, yes. This federal agency can, on their own quote-unquote authority that's been delegated to them by Congress, unconstitutionally, I would say. However, they create these rules, and unless we challenge them in court, those are the rules. And so this rule was challenged in court and overturned, yet still being used in now this new attempt. But just so we can get a laugh, if you thought that the proposed additional rule on Title IX was a word salad. Wait till you hear these examples. Okay, before you get there, <laughs> let me make sure I know where we're at at this point. Yeah. We have, who? who is it that is proposing this new amendment? Is it an amendment to Title IX? It's not an amendment. What is it's, it? It's a, it's a rule. Okay, so they're adding a rule to Title IX or is what they want to do? Y- yes, that they are adding... A rule. Language. They're adding language to Title IX. For, no, not to Title IX itself. They are adding a rule in the Department of Education as to how the Department of Education will enforce Title IX. So this is the Department of Edu- Federal Department of Education? That's correct. Trying to do this nationwide for all states? Well, yeah, whatever they do yeah. would apply yes. to, to any school that receives federal funding, which is every public so school. So this is the Federal Department of Education trying to add a rule... Yep. Coinciding with Title IX. As to how it will implement Title IX. Correct. Based on a notice of interpretation from 2021. Correct. That has since been. That was then said nullified. It was said no. Blocked by the court. Blocked by the court in 2022. This year. Earlier this year. Okay. Just want to make sure I know where we're at. Okay. You got it. But this is important because you got to understand how lawless these people really are and the games that the left will play to convince you that they're right. And if we don't push back on stuff like this, we're stupid. So in the the notice of interpretation uh, in 2021, they give a couple of examples as to why it's reasonable to interpret sex to include gender, gender identity. identity. Now, this is, their, this is the examples they give. Listen to this. Consider, for example, an employer with two employees, both of whom are attracted to men. <laughs> okay. So it's not about whether or not they're a man or a woman. It's about who they're sexually attracted to is now defining the person. <clears throat> Consider, for example, an employer with two employees, both of whom are attracted to men. The two individuals are to the employer's mind materially identical in all respects, except that one is a man and the other a woman. If the employer fires the male employee for no reason other than the fact that he is attracted to men, the employer discriminates against him for traits or actions it tolerates for his female colleague. I mean, how dare you accept that the female can be attracted to men, but just because the male is also attracted to men. So it's, it's there. 
I mean, I'm I'm confused just saying it. <laughs> yeah, and and the audacity to actually suggest that shows you where we are in the culture too. No, no one would have tried to write that and get away with it even ten years ago, uh, let alone when I grew up. Now listen to the gender. That's the sexual orientation part. Listen to their example for why gender identity should be included. Take an employer who fires a transgender person who was identified as a male at birth but who now identifies as a female. If the employer retains an otherwise identical employee who was identified as a female at birth, the employer intentionally penalizes a person identified as a male at birth for traits or actions that it tolerates in an employee identified as a female at birth. I'm sorry, Do you notice in both? I, lost you, I lost you like five minutes ago. <laughs> Do you notice in both of those examples... Both of those examples are founded upon a premise with which we don't agree, and that is this statement that assume that the employer assumes that these people are identical. Right. And the employer doesn't. You have to you have to already buy their argument in advance before you can take the rest of the argument. But from the outset, nobody and, – and this this would apply to a person who is a homosexual as well as a person who is straight – you don't view a homosexual person and a heterosexual person as identical. You're already making a distinction by saying this one's a homosexual, this one's a heterosexual. So that the argument they're making is a very weak argument because the premise itself is something that no one would accept. You're not looking at these situations identically. You're looking at every situation. And we have to. We're human beings. We make distinctions all the time. People make preferences what shirt they're going to wear, what shoes they're going to wear, what restaurant they're going to go to. To make it sound as if we actually deny distinctions that we see in people, whether it be their sexual orientation, whether it be their the food they eat, the, the hair color, their visual appearance, we, we make distinctions all the time. And this to pretend that, oh, we're a society that doesn't make distinctions, therefore it would be unfair to make a distinction, is ridiculous. They make distinctions against us. If we vote for a guy named Donald Trump, they make a big distinction about right. who we are. If we believe that all things are defined by God through the scriptures, they make a big distinction about us. So don't tell me that you're not about distinctions, you on the left. You're just for a different kind of distinction. Except that if you're a fe an adult female— who is the same. You just so happen to be thought of as a male at birth. I mean, it's not your fault. You so know. confusing. There's a distinction <laughs> Intentionally too. There's so. a distinction too if you're a business owner and you have two employees and they're both doing the same job and one does one better. You're not allowed to make that distinction. No, In John. fact, I can that's... fire the one that's not doing Ooh, well and the other one well, that is doing well. You know, I just made a distinction. That's right. And you know the distinction just has to be according to the politically favored classes of people. You know, there was a, I'll jump off this and then we'll get back to it. Really quick bunny trail. There was a company this week, you may know the name of it, it's a tech company, that sent out a notice to people letting them know they're going to be layoffs this fall. And they, they said in so many words, the layoffs are going to be determined by your race. Uh, I don't know that story. I'm going to look it Seems up. Seems like I talking. should. Yeah. It just happened this week. And they said, um, we need to make sure because terminating people who are in uh, something like historically underserved communities Minority, is, un yeah. is unfair. So we're going to distinguish between who we let go based upon. So all the, ca all the Caucasians go first. Exactly. Wow. So another distinction. 
This is a long letter, and so we, we, we can't get into everything, but I do just want to point out two things that General Scrimetti pointed out that I'm thankful for because, quite honestly, these are statements that nowadays you almost never hear from any elected official or anyone that has influence or power over policy, and it's way past time that we start saying these things. And so, for one, on page six, he says this. He says, look, if this moves forward, school administrators may feel forced or empowered to insert themselves into constitutionally protected family affairs. The department must recognize that there is a private realm of family life which the state cannot enter that has been afforded both substantive and procedural protections under our Constitution. Those protections extend to cover the rights of parents to bring up their children as they deem fit, including through instruction on matters of behavior and ethics. And he quotes a dissenting opinion from Justice Thomas from 2011, explaining the founding generation's fundamental belief that parents had absolute authority to direct the proper development of their minor children. All parents thus retain a constitutionally protected right to guide their own children on matters of identity, including the decision to adopt or reject various gender norms and behaviors. Yeah. Thank you. Like, we never hear this anymore. What we do hear often is that, you know, schools are where we're co-parenting. You know, I mean, we're taking a co-parenting role and we're we're it, it's just you never hear anymore from people in power that parents have complete and absolute authority to rear their children, to shape the worldview of their children, to teach them what they ought to believe. So you said there are 17 other states that joined 19 others, so including Tennessee. There are, there are 20 states 20 represented. States, so 40 percent of the states, which is great. It's great that Tennessee led on this. Is it just attorneys general that are on that? No legislators? Just attorneys general. Yeah, this is an okay. attorney general uh, letter. Yeah. It would be great if that were expanded and we saw some legislators signing. How many would sign on uh-huh. to these statements? Yeah. I think we should encourage them. Yeah. I mean, governors would sign on to that. Well, that's, a, that's a good point. You would assume <laughs> you would assume in Tennessee the governor would sign on to that because he just – right? Yeah. He just went through the process of appointing this. Well, s- suggesting the appointment. Suggesting the appointment the, yeah. Technically, the Supreme <clears throat> Court appointed. But yes, for all intents and purposes, he's the governor. So, I mean, that excites me uh, yeah. because that, that's the only way really to push back against this radical agenda is to ensure that, that parents retain this authority. And secondly, another thing you never hear, he says – Finally, the department's novel attempt to expand Title IX would push the statute beyond Congress's lawmaking authority. Here we go. Congress does not have the ability to set education policy directly. Instead, it enacted Title IX through its broader power to tax and spend in pursuit of the general welfare. Hmm. Right. We have an attorney general that is acknowledging that the federal government has no constitutional authority to direct education policy over the states. Again, you never hear anyone say this. The, so should there even be a federal Department my, of Education? It's wholly unconstitutional. So let me bring this home then, because our attorney general should know this, right? So on the one hand, our attorney general is taking the right point of view 
and he's tackling this issue, I believe, the right way, both constitutionally and morally. And yet, the other way that the Department of Education violates both the Constitution and its rulemaking authority is because it establishes standardized tests, Mm. right? By establishing standardized tests and making students take that test in order to qualify for uh, whether it's dual academic credit or any other, you know, scoring on ACTs and SATs and whatnot. By doing that, this is what happens. And, and I got this, there's a parent that I know that sent me communication between the parent and local school. I believe, I shouldn't quote, it's a local school here in Williamson County. I'll mm-hmm. go back and figure it out. The teacher was trying to, this was part of the opt-out. Remember the, the opt-out legislation? Right. The teacher was contacted by my friend, and my friend said, I want to opt out. Here's the reason why, because what you're teaching had to do, again, with sexual orientation, stuff that should never be taught in high school, very sexually driven content. The teacher wrote back, reluctantly said, okay, we'll provide alternatives because required to, but also made a snide comment that, well, these are going to be required. You're going to be required to know these things for the ACT and college prep and all of that. So the parent went back and said, what are you trying to tell me? And he's over back and forth of this exchange, it came out that the teacher is only teaching to the test. The teacher's not independently creating curriculum. Hmm. The teacher's taking curriculum that's provided by these curriculum society or curriculum companies, you know, which, that all create curriculum to get you ready for this test. This test, which is created by the national government, right? So in effect, we are allowing the federal government to provide curriculum, which is in direct violation of the law, but they do it un, it's not even undercover. They do it in a way that people aren't pushing back. Everybody says, oh, we need to take these tests. We need to teach to the test. And so in effect, there's federal curriculum in every one of your schools, including right here in Brentwood. And before we move off, one final thought, because I think we've talked about this in the podcast. I've certainly talked about this a lot prior while I was campaigning. But this Title IX, where it says – in terms of uh, discrimination based on sex, that that clause ends by saying this. Our other educational program or activity operated by a recipient which receives federal financial assistance. So let's just be clear. We have to fight this. Attorney Scrimetti is fighting the right fight. No question. All of this is unconstitutional. But here's the key. The state of Tennessee in particular, any state, would not even have to deal with this at all. If we simply educated our children without the use of federal funds, I am such a huge proponent of getting every bit of federal funding out of the state possible. But the low-hanging fruit in our state in particular is education. Of our entire statewide education budget, and I say only, but it's it's still a big number, but respectively, only 10% of our state's education budget is federal funding. Do you know what that dollar number is? I don't know the dollar amount, but it's 10%. But I've got to imagine in a state that currently operates on a 2 to $3 billion surplus in our budget, education is an area where we can make immediate significant cuts 
we have to get federal funding out of our education. And and look, if we didn't have federal funding in our education, everything we're talking about today is a complete moot point, moot point mm-hmm. because this wouldn't even apply. So I'd, I'll close with that. And if anybody squeals, by the way, you know, you always hear them squeal, oh, we need every single federal dollar to conduct our business. Someone's going to lose a job. We must always remind them, well, back in 2020, the federal government and the state governments declared our work non-essential. They had no sympathy for removing our opportunity to work and to feed our families. So I don't think slicing 10% off the overall budget is that big of a sacrifice, considering that I had to give up my work for a couple of years because of the government's fear Mm -hmm. of something that wasn't real. Can you give me specifics? When I ask the question, should there even be a federal Department of Education, and you say, no, it's unconstitutional, just for listeners and reference why it's unconstitutional? Because the way that our Constitution was drafted in in the form of government that we have, the people formed a government. Mm -hmm. Government did not pre-exist the people in this country. As such, whenever we drafted a, a constitution, we effectually formed a government. And by drafting the constitution, we enumerated the powers of that government, okay? Which means the government now only has the power which has specifically been enumerated in the constitution. We drafted this document. Here's the power that you have. If that power has not been specifically enumerated in the Constitution, you don't have it. And that's not in there. That is not in there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, same as family law and marriage and all those things. That That's why education and uh, – well, it was it – was, um, Department of Education – when was that founded? 1979 by Jimmy yeah, Carter? Un- unfortunately – it was actually signed into law by Ronald Reagan, but mm. it was all advanced by Carter. By Carter. Yeah. So, I mean, you had many, many years that we existed as a country with no U.S. Department of Education. By the way, prior to the Department of Education, the United States was ranked number one around the world. I think we're now number 24. Mm. So, yeah. So, bottom line, the Constitution simply has not given them the power. The the states have the right to assume powers per the Tenth Amendment that are not enumerated. The federal government does not have the power to assume additional powers outside of yeah. what's been stated. Yeah. I just want I just wanted I thought that would be helpful to be said for people who may not understand that. But yeah, and remember, and this is what Larry Arn makes reference to at Hillsdale a lot. He talks about the importance of the Northwest Ordinance. That education was embedded into the structure of future states by virtue of the Northwest Ordinance, which divided every town into 36 lots and reserved a center lot for public schools, requiring outer lots to generate resources for those schools. That was the genesis of the idea of public education, but it was never to be controlled by the federal government and most certainly not the curriculum. The idea was we want to have these locations in every state and every district whereby the public can be educated. And oh, by the way, the point of that education was to teach them to be self-governing, liberty-minded people, right? To understand yeah. the founding, not to, be, not to be just taught all this claptrap and Marxist philosophy. I did not know that about the Northwest Ordinance. Yeah. Kevin, do you, do you have a China cabinet for us? Or did Always we... have a China okay. cabinet. All right, I thought although, so. Although I, I have to figure out a way to make it brief. So I'm, I'm pulling up from where we left off, and I'll finish this section. We... 
we had allocated four threats, and we didn't finish threat number one. If you go back to the last episode, threat number one was awarding state contracts and infrastructure projects to Chinese government-linked companies. So let me pick up where we left off, and then we can have a brief discussion. Uh, Many in state and local governments worry about the threats associated with embedding Chinese technology in their infrastructure and government offices, but so far, few legislative solutions. Um, This Heritage Foundation report that we've been working off of also points to a law in Georgia. We talked about a Texas law last episode. Brian Kemp, in May of 2022, signed Senate Bill 346, which amends Georgia's official code to prohibit any company, this is, quote, any company owned or operated by the government of China, end quote, from bidding or submitting a proposal to provide goods or services for any state agency. So again, it's effective, but effective in one lane only, right, which is preventing them from doing business with the state agency. If you are a private company, Mm -hmm. which is one of those subnational, or if you are a local agency, you're not covered by that law. Um, Georgia's new law is more fit for purpose, the author of this uh, piece says. The greatest challenge this law is going to face is that it may be somewhat vague definitions that that are in the law. For example, will the state determine whether a company is, quote, owned or operated by the Chinese government? Most Chinese technology companies successful enough to be considered for a contract in the U.S. are at least partially Chinese government owned. Does the prohibition only apply when the government has a commanding share of over 50 percent or would even a fraction of a percentage make a company ineligible? These ambiguities will likely place a considerable burden on state agencies and regulators who review bids and proposals and might even render the bill unenforceable. So Georgia's state legislature, like that of Texas, deserves credit for passing a law that goes beyond the negative list, that that system favored by federal government. Uh, It wasn't an easy task, and opponents say the prohibition was too broad. But the bill passed along partisan lines with only four Democrats supporting the bill in the House and one in the Senate. And then one additional challenge. Even the broadest attempts to exclude Chinese government-controlled companies from state contracts will fail to fully protect state institutions if they cannot account for two additional challenges. One, the risk of U.S. companies using China-provided technology to service government contracts. So not only are they excluding private companies from the legislation, but then if they go ahead and do business with those private companies, the Chinese have completely gotten around the legislation. So that's problem number one. The other problem is the fact that rules about government procurement do not apply to critical infrastructure that is not owned or controlled by the government. So again, you have, you know, even your utilities, any Verizon, AT&T, these are corporate institutions that if they were taken out would severely hamper our ability to communicate and so we're making progress in a couple of these states but as we get into next week uh, and we can discuss this we'll start to talk about threat number two which is beijing's infiltration of american universities Mm. yeah well this i mean this push to limit the ability of the of the ccp to yeah coordinate with our state entities in terms of contracts is is certainly a prudent one. But since uh, you you just mentioned Georgia, right? But we were also talking about the law that that Texas um, yes. was working on. Yep. Well, that reminded me, sort of the same vein. Last year, Chip Roy, congressman from Texas, 
had put in a bill in the House that would prevent the CCP from buying property in the United States, yep. period. Yep. And uh, there's some interesting statistics here I'm pulling off of the Daily Wire. Listen to this. This is scary. Oh, I was actually going to quote these statistics, I think, earlier, and I could not remember them, so I'm glad you're bringing it up. Well, data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture shows that foreign investors control nearly 30 million acres of U.S. farmland, roughly the size of Ohio. And Texas has the second highest amount of foreign ownership with 3 million acres under foreign control. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is incredibly a dangerous situation we're in. And I, you know, I, I applaud Chip Roy for bringing this forward. Why, why would we not? This is a a huge security concern for the people and uh, the food supply in general. So um, anyway, just wanted to was throw that, that out was there. Was that foreign? <clears throat> yeah, I, I have a whole section of my binder that's devoted to the uh, real estate aspect. But question about that particular statistic, Gary, 30 million owned by foreign. Not just China. Yeah. yeah do you know what the breakdown is between? It doesn't have that here. By the way, quiz question. You know how many how many acres are farmland in Tennessee? Yeah, uh, we we went over this. We oh, talked we about this. Okay. Yeah, it was like uh, ten million. Ten million. Yeah. Ding 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 ding. Wow, good memory. I didn't good remember memory. That. It was Tennessee's like what forty we have million 46 total? Forty six million acres yeah. and ten million are farmland. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was wasn't it three hundred was, or four hundred and something thousand acres in Williamson County or yeah, Middleton? That was the same. You guys episode. have good memory. I remember it's the, that. It's the same episode we talked about how many chickens we eat a day. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know. I, go back and listen to episodes. It's back 20, there somewhere. Twenty million, right? something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Twenty million a day. Eight a lot of bi- chickens. Eight billion a year. <laughs> I'm doing my part. <laughs> Before we get out of here, I want. I just wanted to say, I just wanted to bring this up. The whole thing that's happening in Martha's Vineyard right now with the illegal immigrants <laughs> being flown up there from Florida, and then also the illegal immigrants being bussed to Kamala Harris's yep. front yard. It's one of the greatest things I've ever seen in politics. It is like watching a sports game. Like it's. It is pure entertainment for me. Yeah, and it's so predictable, right? It And the response is predictable. I, I hope more of it happens, and I hope, I don't know. It's just, it's fun to watch. Tell me if I'm wrong, but the only response that I've seen that the left has taken is not to, they're provi- they want to provide them services, right? They're declaring emergency de- declarations so that they can provide services for these yeah. illegals. Dangerous, we know that a lot of the people that come across the southern border are not just from South America, Mexico, and they aren't just Hispanic, right? There's a lot of Mideastern people who have not been vetted. I'm sure that they also comprise a percentage of these groups that are being dumped in Martha's Vineyard. And yet, what are they doing? In addition to disparaging DeSantis for doing it, they're saying, well, we've got to provide services for them. Yes, that was part of the excuse. Uh, I don't know who she was. I don't know if she was an alderman or city councilwoman. I don't know who she was, but she was somebody that was interviewed in in Martha's Vineyard and her excuse was, we just don't have the resources to right. take care of these people. Yeah. You're, Mar- you're Martha's Vineyard. Like, you're the most, you're the richest par- portion yeah. of our country and you can't handle 50 people? Yeah, the people? implication is who can then? If you yeah. can't in Martha's Vineyard, so we can in I saw, Tennessee? I saw a great tweet that said that I think the Obamas have a 10-bedroom house. That should do at least half of them, right? <laughs> should house at least half of them. <laughs> There's a meme I saw, like the, the Homer Simpson, you know, going yeah, into, into the, the bush. Go there, he's going into the bush with the the sign that says, you know, love is love, yeah. believe science, <laughs> believe. And he's coming out with a no trespassing sign. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. That, All right. That, that, there's one more one more yep. comment. Yep. They used to call that NIMBY, the not in my backyard syndrome. All the legislation ah. that 
that that's good. He's Congress, got he's got these NIMBY. TZ mitts and NIMBY and <laughs> yeah. When I was in law school, they always used to talk about that Ted Kennedy, and it, it was something to do with uh, yachts. No, no, it was it was windmills, and it was offshore drilling, right? And they always they just want it out of their eyesight. As long as they get out of their eyesight, they'll vote for something, and so they'll be okay with windmills provided they're on your property. But if they have to come out their porch and see it on theirs, NIMBY, not in my backyard. NIMBY. Got it. That's exact. I mean, that, you could not describe that. What's going on right now? More perfectly. Yeah. All right. Well, Joe Rogan. Yep. And Matt Walsh. Always welcome. Till next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Freedom Matters podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit TennesseeStands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. And remember, as revolutionary Thomas Paine once stated, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigues of supporting it.